Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the BBC. Thanks for downloading the show. My name is Susan Kalman. I'm a comedian and this is my podcast, Mrs Brightside, a cheerful take on depression. Yes, comedy and depression. Bit of a weird one, isn't it? The thing is, I like to make misery funny and I think other people feel the same way. And I wanted to make this podcast because I think we should all talk more about our mental health and remove some of the stigma surrounding it. I've invited eight amusing people into a basement in Soho to bear their souls to me. I didn't have any questions. It's not a traditional interview. I just wanted to chat to them about what they thought about their own heads. There's no parameters. There's no definitions. It's just coming from them and me. In this episode, I talked to Felicity Ward, who's a comedian and writer I've known for a very long time. In fact, we've had so many discussions about depression that we depress ourselves. I don't know if you've ever had to share a toilet when you can hear feedback about the gig. Whether it's like you're on the... Whether you're on a lineup gig or whatever and you go to the toilet and you hear someone going, eh, she wasn't very good, was she? You're like, I don't have anywhere else that I can go. Can you please just save your criticism? What you're about to hear is the two of us having the kind of chat we would have at one o'clock in the morning in our flat at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Hope you enjoy what we talk about. It's revealing and uh, at times pretty emotional. I, uh, Felicity... I think have been depressed for as long as I can remember. I'll be very honest. I never, I don't remember not feeling excessively sad and anxious. For you, are you are you a pure depressive like myself? No, depression came very late to me. I um, had irritable bowel syndrome and anxiety. I didn't know what either of those things were, but I had them from the time I was about a teenager, about 13, 14. I would have panic attacks related to going to the toilet, um, but it was to do with the other business, not to do with the wee-wees. <laughs> and so that happened. I wish people could see your hand gestures. You think the other business, I was you doing do like shooting guns. guns. Poo, poo, yep. poo. The other business. <laughs> backside. Backside, trackside. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> so I, that, was, that was sort of most of my teenage years and early 20s. I'm surprised at how many very happy, depressed people I know. I was writing about this the other day and um, like the the people that go, the people that are shocked at other people. Um, look, well, let's just go straight into suicide. You know when someone <laughs> suicides and they're like, but he was so happy, but mm. she was so happy. It's like, yeah, no one wants to hang around a sad person. <laughs> like we learn tools so that you want to be near us. Oh, absolutely. It's um, one of the most curious things is um, – after I did that dancing show. That dancing show. Is that what you call it? That dancing show. Oh, my God, I love that. And I would say to people, I don't have a lot of self-confidence. And they go, of course you do, for goodness sakes. And I went, do you not Of think, course you do. Do you not think at the age of 43 I've developed a huge amount of, of skill in pretending I'm fine? Yeah. 
it's, you know. They're survival tools. Mm-hmm. And that's not like a uh, – that's not me being a victim going, oh, I have to survive. But it's like you've got to figure out sometimes if you don't get well, you've got to figure out how to survive around your illness mm-hmm. and so that you can operate in the world with other people. Because um, when you meet other people that have depression – like we have had – quite a few discussions of, I don't know how I'm going to get through it, those little days. But we've got, you know, you've got to learn the people, you've got to learn the people you can do that with because you you learn very quickly the people that you can't. We're like, um, can we have a chat? And they're like, why are you crying? You're like, nothing. <laughs> Joking. It's hay fever. Very bad hay fever, but with self-harm as well. <laughs> it is one of the the most important things is to learn who... Yes, it's not just it's not even a trust issue. No, it's just people who will get it if you start crying. Because often, what sets me off is not the original thing that's making me upset. It it can be the small thing that then reminds me of the something else that yeah. sets me off. That opens the door to your history. <laughs> yes. So if you say to someone, "I'm really angry because Tesco didn't deliver the right type of yogurt, and that's why I'm sobbing uncontrollably," mm. and they go. I don't understand. <laughs> Whereas someone someone else might go, yeah, I completely get that. Yes. So it's finding the right people to talk to, isn't it? Yes, and finding people that aren't uh, that don't straight go to offering solutions. Mm-hmm. It's always offering solutions. And the thing is, I absolutely get that it's coming from a place of I want to help you. I really want to help you. I love you. And how can we make you better? And the like the absolute key to being for for me, the key to being around someone with mental health is saying, "I hear you, and that sounds terrible mm-hmm. like just though those two those two things are like, man, that sucks mm-hmm. so i they're like not stock standard response in that I have a you know an index card of things that I say to my friends with mental health issues, but if someone comes to me with their problems. My first reaction is always empathy mm-hmm. and that's it. And then, I, you know, they might need to talk it out or whatever. I, I say it like it's other people. It's me as well. <laughs> you know, other people someone, with depression. I know. I can't imagine. <laughs> it's something my very glorious wife does and I love her passionately. You love her more than almost anyone I know loves their partner. It is so beautiful. <laughs> or at moments I'm envious. Cuz you two like what have you been together for like 20 years yeah, or 15, something? 15 16 years something And like you that, both yeah. are still giddy around each other and it's just beautiful. It's so beautiful. I think it's cuz I have depression and anxiety she wakes up every day with a different person. <laughs> Just <laughs> holding her, waking up with white knuckles, gripping the side today? of the <laughs> But she always tries to offer a solution. Yeah, right. Which can make me angry. Yes. Because if it was that simple, I would have done it. So I didn't. I didn't get X, Y, and Z. I'm not on this or whatever. Well, why don't you? Okay, can you just let me get it out of my system? Yes. And and vocalise it and then maybe I'll feel better about it if I talk about it. Because for me, the act of even talking about it is difficult sometimes. Mm. Especially you know. the shame attached with what, you know, when it's, um, um, when it's a- attached to outcomes. Mm-hmm. So if it's, this is something that I wanted and I didn't get it. There is a shame naturally in, I wanted this thing and I didn't get it. One, that you wanted it in the first place. Two, that you thought you were good enough to get it. Three, that the people that have 
passed on you have just confirmed every fear that you ever had about yourself. <laughs> like that, to to talk about that is very um, is very vulnerable, and finding the right people that you can say. I feel vulnerable for all these reasons. And then when they offer solutions, you're like, oh, but I was trying to be vulnerable and now you're trying to fix me. Do you ever do that thing? I sometimes stand in front of my wife and go, I'm feeling vulnerable. Yes, it's really helpful. I say, like I say to my husband, I'm like, I feel really needy. I need a cuddle. Yes. It's so helpful rather than trying to figure out a manipulative way to get them to cuddle you, just go, Honey, I just feel really needy and sad and little. <laughs> it's so easy. Yes. But that happens over time in a relationship. That's one of those things that finding the right person, because your lovely husband oh, so lovely, is someone who gets you. Mm. And I mean, for me, one of the things about depression and anxiety is that feeling of loneliness, that no one understands you, that there's, there's no one there for you. Mm. And when you find a partner... That's why I think I cling on to my wife as if she's a piece of log in the middle of the ocean because she does understand. And I've no idea how she puts up with me sometimes, but she does. And I think that support has changed my life and my depression. Having someone there who gets me, it has been life-changing. Yeah. And it's also, I was talking about this the other day. Um, I don't know why I keep prefacing things with things that I've done the other day. <laughs> I think that I don't want you to ever find out that I've ever said these again and you think, oh, my God, she lied to me. It was as if she was saying it for the first time. I just think there's an act of legislation. If you repeat yourself on a podcast, I could do there, something there, to you. It's not about that. It's about that I've broken your trust. And <laughs> as friends. We're both sitting here naked, Felicity. How could we trust each other more? <laughs> I know it is warm, isn't it? Um, I can't even remember what I was talking about. Oh yeah, when you the, it, it, I don't want to say that relationships are the only thing that make things okay because they're absolutely not. And I've definitely felt lonely in relationships as well. But the idea of having a safe place that you can be yourself is also, um, I think, an incredible support, even if that is. You're living with someone that you can't look at or be near because you're so self-hating, so furious, so depressed, whatever. Just knowing that you have a place. And I think there that sort of links into, I was speaking to this um, woman the other day and she was at the front of a train station and I've seen it there before. She was, um, you know, asking for change. And uh, there's a homeless organisation that I'm a patron of and I sort of started to talk to her about that and I explained the um, living situation and she said, I just want my own door. I just thought, fuck, I get that. Mm -hmm. Like imagine, I, I, I know in Australia that um, homelessness, uh, like people that sleep rough, I think 80% have mental health issues. Obviously that makes total sense. So the idea that you not only are sleeping rough but you have nowhere that you can go and close the door like for me, I need to, I, I don't know what I would do if I didn't have somewhere that I could just close the door and go, right, just for the, even if it's a bathroom mm -hmm. and, and Lord knows I've locked myself in a toilet before, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, to, that, that I think that safety is really an integral part of um, managing mental illness. Can I just say, if you're listening to this and wondering why Susan Cameron's laughing at a woman locking herself in the <laughs> toilet, it's because Felicity and I initially bonded very deeply over the issue of toilets. Mm -hmm. We have a very similar phobia 
anxiousness about toilets, lack of toilets specifically. So, for example, I'm filming a new show just now, travel show. And the first thing I said to the production company was, you need to tell me where the toilets are. Oh my god! I love before so we film something. I need to be able to go to the toilet before you call action. Before, because otherwise, this is all going to go horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I need the toilet. It's not about that. But what if I did? Exactly. And that's something that we have in common. Specifically, a phobia before we go on stage. Yes, but that's. Uh, it wasn't until I looked up the symptoms of anxiety. And I, I did a show about this years ago called What If There Is No Toilet. It was, was, a, it was an exceptional show. I saw it. Th- thank you. Um, but uh, I didn't know that that was a symptom of anxiety, that you, you had a fear of losing control of your bladder and bowel. And that's the only reason I started talking about it because I had so much – I was so embarrassed. I was so ashamed that I was behaving what felt like a six-year-old, that mm. like I couldn't do anything without going to the toilet first just in case. It was always just in case. And nothing ever happened. I've never wet myself in public. Oh, I mean, I've laughed. But that it, it almost doesn't count if you're not anxious about it. <laughs> if it's a happy urination on yourself, yeah. then it's a positive thing. I mean, I've had a splash before. I've laughed so hard. There's been a splash. I'm human. I'm human. But, <laughs> um, but it's the if there's no toilet and you've got to go somewhere and you don't know how long you're going to be away from that toilet, I remember I did a, this is, this sounds like a name drop. I did a movie years ago and my first scene was in a, I reckon, $10,000 wedding dress. There was 250 extras and the first scene was in a church and I was kissing this man that I didn't know very well. That was my first filming scene. And they're like, okay, we're just about to roll. I was like, do you mind if I just go to the toilet? And they're like, hmm? And I, I had to like lift this huge dress and waddle out of the church and it was around the corner and the, fortunately, the first AD was an, an, an angel and, um, and she was very, very understanding of it. I think that I told her about that. And so a couple of times she went, do you need to go? I was like, yeah, I do actually. Mm-hmm. So she knew and that was fine. And I've, um, ever since I found out it was, it's an actual symptom, mm. I've been far more open about it. And when people, like I'll, if I'm about to film something or record something, and I've recently been to the toilet and I'll go, oh, I'm just going to go to the toilet. It's just an anxiety thing. It's just something that I do. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's a defense mechanism that I say it like that or like to get them before they ask me. Regardless, it's made things a lot easier for me anyway. It, it's very difficult to explain if you don't have this particular form of anxiety. When I toured, my first tour, there were places where there was no toilet backstage. backstage. Now, before I go on stage, being very honest, you know when they say, what what are your rituals before you go on (laughs) stage? I go to the toilets. Yeah. Probably six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Mm -hmm. I I was afraid of people thinking I was a diva. I Mm -hmm. have to have a dressing room with my own toilet. But it's actually an anxiety thing. It's not anything else. The worst is, um, I don't know if you've ever had to share a toilet when you can hear feedback about the gig, whether it's like you're on the, whether you're on a lineup gig or whatever, and you go to the toilet and you hear someone going, eh, she wasn't very good, was she? You're like, I don't have anywhere else that I can go. Can you please just save your criticism? First year of the Fringe, 
2000 and I can't remember. <laughs> underbelly, proper underbelly, Cowgate. Yes. Right? Oh. Um, the room, uh, you had to stay backstage while the audience came in. Yeah. The uh, backstage area became filled with large bottles of urine as the fringe went on because the boys would simply relieve themselves. We could not do that. I'm not doing that. Hey, you need a ball. I'm not, <laughs> not going to do that. So as soon as the show's finished, run downstairs because it's now an automatic thing. I need to go to the toilet straight after a show. It's now uh, Pavlov's dog. You finish the show, you need to go to the toilet. In the queue. Now that first year, Felicity, I'm going to be very honest with you. The show was awful. <laughs> I mean, it was not good. Stinky, stinky, stink, stink. Stinky, stinky, stink, stink. But it was on at 8.15 at night. So I would often sell out on a Saturday night because it's a stand-up show at 8.15 at night. Mm. People would go, what's on? Oh, yeah. That's a person. Sold out show, 100, 155 people. You did a 155-seater in your first year? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> right? Sold out. I knew within five minutes that they hated me. Every I mean, night. pure. No, this this particular Saturday okay. night. Pure, pure, not even hatred, just disinterest. Oh, that's worse worst. than hate. At least hatred is engaged. Absolutely. This was just... <sighs> but you have to contractually do your 55. you got to do it. You can't just go, shall we just forget it? Show finishes. To tepid appreciation. <laughs> At best. <laughs> Run down the stairs. Cue for the toilets. A woman in front of me had been to my show and she was tutting just tutting at me and then she turned around and said no you've ruined our whole evening and at that point I really I need to go to the toilet so I have to stand and go I said I'm sorry and she turned away and queued for the toilet and I'll always forget just that misery of trying to be a performer standing in the queue while a woman is going We've just ruined everything, haven't you? Knowing in my heart, I had also... I, I mean, it was a terrible show. It was a terrible show. I knew that. But you still tried. <laughs> I did try. You still, like... I did try. I, that's the thing is, sometimes I see terrible comedy, but I know that they're trying. Like, I'm like, you're trying. And that it is... I, I don't feel like this every day. It, it sometimes f- sounds like a cop-out. It is really brave to stand on stage just by yourself. That's it. That's mm-hmm. brave because hardly anyone would do that. Now, I know that brave is the worst compliment that you can pay any comedian. It's absolutely. Especially the, a woman. Oh, the absolute oh, worst. so brave, Felicity. Well, so brave. Or well done. Well done. I'm like, you're well not done. your granddaughter. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well done. That was brave. Um, but like when you're, when you're, it's, again, it's that vulnerability of saying, I have written this joke. I think these jokes are so funny. People should watch me. They're so funny they should pay for it without knowing what they're going to get. That's the conceit of comedy. It is slightly arrogant, but it also it's a huge risk to say that implicitly in the work that you do. So to turn around to someone who has tried for an hour to make you laugh, like you didn't get up there and go, this is anti-comedy, I'm going to try and not make you laugh. It's not a difficult, this isn't like difficult comedy that you're trying to get people to understand that it's, an, you know, an obscure art. You're like, these are jokes that I th- – you were trying. Yeah. To say that you ruined their night with an hour, like, 
When you say it was terrible, how bad are we? How bad? Okay, so the problem was what I was trying to do was I was told mm-hmm. that the best way to be a comedian and to oh, be successful. God. I hate this already. Was <laughs> to have 10 minutes, distinct 10 minute chunks that live at the Apollo or Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow could come and see. You would go on that, you would become famous, your life would be sorted. Sure. So I was trying to write 10 minute chunks because I was told that's what to do. Right. Two years of disastrous shows. <laughs> Really not great. I mean, I mean, they're not awful, but they're not great. I took a year off and then came back and did the show about equal marriage. Was that the ladies not for turning? Yes, that was the year that we met. Was it not? That, that was, was the year the that we were met. in the same room. Exactly. Yes, and that was the first year I'd done personal comedy about what I felt about things. And that's the year I actually decided I wanted to still be a stand-up comedian. You had a belter that year. It was good. People did not see I'd ruined their evening. Yes. But what was interesting for me is stand-up comedy suddenly became interesting for me when I started talking about things that were important to me. Mm. And that was about equal marriage and all of those kind of things. And, I mean, I don't know, when you did What If There's No Toilet, that seemed to me to be a year where you'd already been very successful, but that show was, you were everywhere that year. And you were talking about something that was very personal. Yeah. I did a show the same year as you did This Lady's Not For Turning. Hedgehog Dilemma? The Hedgehog Dilemma. And that was a similar thing in that it was, that was the first time I'd done a story show or like, you know, a chronological period of time show. Um, it still had jokes all the way through and it had all of the stuff that I usually do. Um, but uh, it was very, very hyper-personal. And um, I was nervous about it beforehand, which I think is a good thing to feel like you're taking a risk and you're taking a chance. And Hedgehog had that same effect. It was in Australia, yeah, sort of like was very acclaimed. I don't know what the word is. Mm -hmm. It went went really well in Australia. And then it was – I'd taken the year – I've taken Edinburgh off the year before. So I thought, well, I'll come back with this show. It's done well everywhere in Australia and I'll change venues and I'll get a – get a publicist and I'll get a promoter and we'll do everything differently. And if that doesn't work, at least I gave Edinburgh my best shot. And it was the Olympic year, so it was a tough year. Yes, yes. But it did really well and everyone thought that was my first show there. (laughs) Thank God. Because the second show there, (laughs) belly. The second show is what my toilet show was about, where that's where the anxiety started. That's where my toilet stuff started was in 2010. Uh-huh. My, um, yeah, my second show in Edinburgh. Oh, that wasn't where it started. That's where it amped up. Where it became very, very problematic. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Because usually with uh, things, they start and then, and to be honest, the fringe is the cause of a lot of my problems. Yeah. I was really worried about it the other day. Yeah. The, um, I was like, my friends have just finished doing the Melbourne Comedy Festival and, uh, I'm worried that I can't do what I've been doing that's working for me for the past nearly 18 months. Mm. As I said to the, this to you before, um, I kept, I've been burning out for nine years essentially or eight years I was burning out and I'd take a little bit of time off, I'd feel better, I'd go on better again and then the work would slowly creep back in and creep back in and I have, you know, I, I grew up um, in a very working class household and um, we were pretty poor and um, we we still had a really great childhood and we lived in paradise. 
but you could live cheaply back in the 80s in paradise in Australia. Um, but there's still a, a fear for me that if I don't get enough work, I won't get enough money. If I don't have enough money, I can't pay rent. If I can't pay rent, I can't pay for food. If I can't pay food, I'll die. I'll die. Mm-hmm. So that's like that's the basis of I need to work. Is If I don't work, I'll die. So for as soon as I became a comedian, I was a self-employed artist, and lots of artists have this where you think every job is the last job. So, and our family motto basically is if you need more money, you work more. So I moved to the UK and kind of had to start again. And I was afraid that once the money was gone, I'd have to move back to Australia. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that. So I just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And I just kept burning out. And when I burn out, that's when my anxiety comes up. That's when my depression comes up. And it feels overwhelming, unmanageable, um, insurmountable, and forever. It feels forever. So a couple of years ago, my fella was saying, I don't get enough quality time with you. You're always working weekends. And I said, mate, I thought this was a huge gesture. And I said, well, I will not work Sundays anymore. (laughs) And I was like, Felicity, you are magnanimous, generous, giving, you know how to be in a relationship. And what that would mean is I would probably gig five nights a week right in the day or work in the day five or six days a week. And Sunday I would spend in bed going, honey, I can't get out of bed. Do you yeah. have a cup of tea? Yeah. You might relate to this, Susan. And uh, <laughs> Quality time does not mean, you know that quality time where you put me back together again? Yeah. <laughs> Arts and crafts afternoon. <laughs> I mean, I think you mean quality time where I'm a normal human being yeah. and we can have fun together. As does quality to- time mean you actually pick me up and take me to the shower? Is that quality time? It sounds like it. So, so I did that like two years ago and didn't understand why my husband wasn't blown away with my generosity. And it was because the same thing was happening. In the last, coming up to the last Edinburgh Fringe I did, which was 2016, I was burnt out before I got there. Mm. And then, as you saw, I had it emotionally, I had a terrible fringe. Um, professionally, it was wonderful, had really good fun with all of my friends. Lots of people saw my show, it was reviewed very well. But mentally, I was very bad the mm. whole time. And um, and I spoke to uh, Ashling B, and mm-hmm. she, before the fringe, and she said, maybe you don't do the fringe next year. And my first reaction, of course, is always offence. Like, <laughs> doesn't she think that I can do it? Well, I'll show her. Like, she's only doing it because she cares about me. And then when I got to the end of the fringe and realised how mad I was again and sad I was, I went, I think you need a year off. And then at the end... End of 2016, I made a new rule for myself where I'm not allowed to gig more than three nights a week. And emotionally and ego-wise, very painful Yes, because I want to be a comedian. And I see these people that work all of the time around the country, people that I love and respect and adore, and I want to emulate in lots of ways, like not their comedy, but like that's the kind of career that I want. All of a sudden, I've put very strict parameters on whether I can achieve that. And I I can't. I can't do that. But the flip side of that is I have not had depression since the, the beginning of 2017. I have not had depression. And last year was one of, personally, one of the worst years of my life in the things that were happening around me. Mm -hmm. I had a multitude of very hyper-stressful things happening. And what I was was stressed like any other human would be. But I wasn't anxious. I didn't have like I, – I was, I was anxious, but it was externally driven, if that makes sense. You know how you just uh, are 
I usually I just have free floating anxiety. And it comes again from working when I'm underslept, overworked, underfed, underexercised, all the things that are good for me, I'm not doing them. So my anxiety is I'm on high alert at all times. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Last year, I was not on high alert. I was only on high alert when I was around the situations that were that were causing me um, stress and sadness. Um, so it is, I, I feel, that's why I'm worried about doing the fringe this year because I can't work three nights a week. Yes, but you're not going into the fringe in that exhausted state. True. Because there's no question, and it's something that I learned later in life, was that undoubtedly my physical, my physical being affected my depression. Yes. If I had been drinking a lot, and I know you don't drink, you yeah. don't drink at all. No. Alcohol. You, I mean, you drink, you're having a cup of tea now, I'm not calling you a liar <laughs> to your face. But you don't drink alcohol. No. During the fringe, I stopped drinking alcohol because it's a, it, it makes me bad. Yeah, it, well, it, it, it doesn't help me at all. It demolishes your nervous system. And the nervous system is what your anxiety and depression attacks. So if I'm anxious... And then I'm drinking and then wake up and my nervous system is, you know, like a, I don't know, a vibrating chair. And I do that every day. Mm-hmm. And if I was drinking, when I was drinking, that's what I did. I am I, astonished that people drink through the festival. I'm so impressed. <clears throat> it's not a good thing. I just couldn't do it. I can barely do it. I can barely do it sober. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Never mind trying to do it when you're drunk. Oh. I think. I mean, I, I think the thing is taking personal responsibility for my own depression was the best thing I did. I absolutely agree. My head is the way it is, but there are things that I can do. Now I don't always do them. I'm like you. Oh. I haven't had a day off in nine months. I my depression is not in a good place just now, mm. and that's my fault. I should take a day off. Mm. But instead, I'm sitting here with you. What? I'm sorry to do this to you. Can I ask why you haven't had a day off? Because... Like, honestly, if you take a deep breath and you're honest about why you haven't had a t- day off. I worry that I won't get asked to do things again. Yeah. That's just what you said. Yeah. If I say no, they'll get someone else to do it. They'll be fantastic. And then I'll be stuck. Yeah. You know, and I think because we have to work so hard to get anywhere, stand-up comedy is not a meritocracy <laughs> at all. Susan, if you're funny, you'll get the work. That's just how it. That's just how it goes. <laughs> oh my god! And so, if you get a shining opportunity, mm. you feel like I have to run towards the light. Otherwise, 
someone else will come in and then I won't get anything. And the problem with the UK is is that we are surrounded by so many talented people. Yes. The standard and the quantity of great comedians over here. It's disgusting. I was going to say wonderful, but yes, disgusting. <laughs> it's disgusting. <laughs> it's disgusting though because – and then every year someone else comes through and you start, you know, talking to them. But I think I've not been taking care of myself adequately recently. Yeah. And I know that. Well, I – because I've been travelling well, I've cut back to swimming twice a week. I need to swim three times a week. I need to. And I'm swimming twice a week at the moment. And because I'm not bad, I'm like, well, do you really? I'm like, what are you doing? Why would you jeopardise your mind? It's just like my brain is at me at all times. Like it's it's just looking for any opportunity. And I've it, it's not like depression and anxiety. My mental illness voice in my head isn't like, hey, my pretties, huh? we're going to bring you down. It's your mate's voice. It's like, well, you know, you're doing pretty well. So, like, I don't, you don't have to go swimming. You've got that other stuff anyway. Yeah. The voice is actually comes across as um, a genuine concern and a friend of yours. Yes. It's, it's like, yeah. I don't have um, I don't have voices in my head, so I don't have a mental health issue, but I, but I do have voices in my head. Yeah, I don't have like audible. No, I have Waldorf and Statler. That's how I sure. always describe it, which is someone saying you're rubbish. That's essentially that's essentially you're rubbish. That's what is constantly playing in my brain, and I always think sometimes if I work really hard, they'll disappear. Mm. But that just means you become tired. So tired. So tired. Do you know what I figured out? Uh, it's 2016. I still remember it. I I was worried. Uh, you know that thing of like you want something and you don't get it. Yes. And And um, <laughs> I realised in when I was in primary school, like this is so textbook and humiliating. Okay. When I was in primary school, I had a teacher that uh, bullied me. He actively bullied me. He was to humiliate me in front of the class. And I loved him because he was so smart. And I was in a very small school and I was a smart little kid and I wanted to be stimulated. And he stimulated me. Um, but he would also humiliate me. And the year he the year before, when, when he came to school, he would pick who would be ducks at the school. So who did best. And the year before me, he gave it to someone that was that didn't do the best in the exams. And they were surprised that they, they didn't get it. And then the same thing happened to me, I think. It was between me and another girl. It actually could have been the other person who got the right marks, whatever. Mm-hmm. I didn't get ducks of the school. I am still trying to get ducks of the school yeah. That the rest of my life. And I do not know how to resolve that. And I've spoken to therapists about it, multiple therapists about it. But it's actually – it's like – it's, a, it's, it's such an easier way to go, oh, that's why you're doing that. You're still trying to write 1992, which is impossible and mad. When I was in primary six. There we go. <laughs> there was a display on the wall mm. of something. And the teacher said, we want someone to um, write out the cards to go under the pictures. And she didn't pick me. And I remember saying to her, why didn't you pick me? And she said, because your handwriting isn't that nice. And I spent that entire summer learning how to write again. And I copied the kind of um, the very florid uh, cursive writing so that I could write better. Because she didn't, I mean, it it was a display on a wall in primary six. 
yesterday, someone said, you've got very nice handwriting. And I said, yes, because when I was 10, my librarian gave me a C for handwriting and I'd never got a C before. So I was never going to get a C again. My handwriting is beautiful. When I was in the Brownies, (laughs) I was in the Pixies, right? The band. Progressive. And in the Brownies, there's a sixer and a seconder. So the sixer, the sixer is in charge of the pixies. The seconder is second in command. Mm-hmm. And it came to the point where Brownell was choosing the sixer and seconder, and I was the seconder in the pixies. And I said to her, because I expected it, because I was the best. Obviously, I was best new recruit. I was clearly the best. And I said, why am I not sixer? Mm. And she said, because we have to give someone else a chance. Why? Why do you have to give someone else a chance when clearly the best person in the job is here? And I've always wanted to be the sixer in the Pixies. Mm. I've still got my brown uniform. Does and it still fit? It, it, it does. <laughs> and I, it's got the wee seconder badge on it. And I sometimes take that out of the drawer and think, Calman, one day you'll be sixer. Oh, man. Of the brownies. It's sometimes, you know what we're doing? It's no one can see this uh, invisible sack of insecurities and sad memories that we have with us at all times. And what we're doing is a little show and tell of like, you know, when kids like have their Santa sack and yeah. they're like their sisters and brothers and they'll show each other what they got in their Santa sack. That's what we're doing, but with sad memories. Here's the interesting question. Other people, I like speaking to people with anxiety because I have something in common. So I spoke to a woman the other day who has a similar thing of they wake up at four o'clock in the morning in a cold sweat because of something they once said when they were 16 years old yes. to a complete stranger at a party. That's a very common theme with people with anxiety. And I liked it because she got me. And so I would say my way of coping with it is I went to um, CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy. Have you done that? Yes, twice. Did you find it helpful? Yes, incredibly. I liked it because it's about changing behaviours. So what I do is when I wake up with that memory of the bad thing I've said to someone, which really wasn't that bad, Mm. I pretend I substitute it now with a different memory, which has never happened. So... I'm on Caroline's on Broadway. I've just done a successful stand-up show. In the audience is Samantha B, Sarah Paulson, uh, Kate McKinnon, all of my heroes. And then we go to the bar for a drink afterwards. Now, none of that happened. But as soon as I start having that cold sweat, I remember a memory that hasn't happened. And I've trained myself to go to a happier place that I make up in my own head. See, I um, uh, I did CBT. I've been through it twice, and both times I've done it, I found it so incredibly helpful. The first time, life changer. The second time, my therapist actually said, "Felicity, you don't need to be here." I'm like, "You're absolutely right." Two weeks later, worked myself into the ground. Had a month of the worst depression I've had in my life. Um, but I re- remember all these tools. I'm like, "Oh yeah, I remember that worked for me." And I do not know how to maintain discipline. Because if I, what you've just said, that sounds like such a wonderful idea and you can train yourself, absolutely. But then my brain whispers, yeah, but you know that's not true. (laughs) That voice is very loud to me. So when I say to myself, you didn't get the thing, but mate, you did a great job. You worked really hard and you should be really proud of yourself. And my real self says, yes, I am proud of myself. And then my mental illness yeah. goes, that's what weak people do. <laughs> they let themselves off the hook. Um, I think I'm the worst person in the world because 
A, to think you're good is arrogant, mm-hmm. which uh, that's, that's, I don't, it's not necessarily the Scottish Presbyterian upbringing, but don't compliment yourself. For the, for the love of God, that's what terrible people do. Don't mm. become arrogant. And the thing my wife says is she wishes I was kinder to myself. Yes. I think it's frustrating for people who are our partners. Yes. When we are so unkind to ourselves. And I wish I was kinder to myself. I wish I enjoyed things more. Yeah, I I think that I... I don't know... I don't know how mean I am to myself. I know that I set myself unrealistic goals and I know that I have the voice that says, if you're kind to yourself, that's, that's what weak people do. Like that's that. So I have that yes. voice. It's not like a. I don't have all the time. I don't have. You're a loser. You can't fucking do anything. Um, why are you even here? No one likes you. It's a lot quieter than that and more insidious, but with the same um, insinuation. What's similar is that year, 2016, we were both at the Pleasance. We were both at the Pleasance above. We both did shows. We were both selling out. We were both doing really well. And the two of us were sitting going, (laughs) instead of walking through the Pleasance courtyard like Billy Big Bollocks, Mm. going, we are hugely successful comedians. Mm. That's not what we did. And instead of enjoying that month where you did a very successful show, Sold out, great reviews, blah, blah, blah. Mine were less good. Three stars. I'll take it. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't trying to change anyone's life, okay? You sold out your entire run before you got there. Yes. And you added shows and sold those out. Yes. Yeah. But I was awful. I was terrible. Obviously. It was a terrible show. Terrible. Everything was awful. Yeah. What I determined to do, and it was about in the past three or four years, I've really had to think of my life. I think because for someone who was once suicidal, I really don't want to die. Yeah. It's an extraordinary thing, that yeah. turnaround, when you go, I once hated myself, I wanted to die. No, I really don't want to die. I really don't at all. And I don't want to waste my life. Mm. And I think I've wasted a lot of my life with all this. But do you think... Do you think that you had a choice? Oh, you, no. Well, then you didn't have the tools, so you didn't waste your life. You didn't have another yeah. way... Like, because uh, I, I also understand that. I like, I, because I really think that sometimes, you know, I did this, I did this um, TV record, and it was a, a live stand-up thing. And I, I've not had a lot of TV work in the in the last couple of years. And uh, you know, I'm away from home, and uh, I, I gave up a lot to be here. And and there was someone, there was a couple of people who were newer than me, and they'd been given double slots, and I'd been given a single slot. And my first thought was, oh. This is the death rattle that they've given an old comedian one last shot. Like the brutality. And I just think like I'm just I'm constantly having this conversation and what I don't do is I don't yell at my depression and my anxiety anymore. I don't go, no, it's not like that. I, I try and say like I've been over here for five years. If I didn't come over here, I wouldn't have met my husband I'm so much better for having been over here. My comedy is better. I have a beautiful community of friends. I really I really feel loved in the comedy community over here. I really feel like I have... You are loved. Uh, thank you. But, like, I do have genuine beautiful friends yes. that I've made yes. in the time over here. Lifelong friends that I will never stop being in contact with. And as hard as it has been over here in some regards, like, 
I can't call it a waste of time. I can't call it a failure because of the wonderful things I have achieved. Yes. And I mean in all, I don't mean just in comedy, I mean in all aspects of my life. So I just, I, I also think, you know, that for the time that I was really sad, so I, I got a CBT at the beginning of 2015 and that's when I started swimming as well and that's when my life changed f- so much for the better. If I hadn't got as sick as I did in 2014, 15, that winter, then I wouldn't have, I probably wouldn't have tried to make the change that I did make that changed my life. So I can't call that a waste of time. I can't call being sad a waste of time because that's the springboard that's got to me to me to where I am now. And I think that it's I think that is is unkind for you to look back at yourself yeah. and and say, "Oh, I wasted so much of my life being sick." You would like yeah. and I know it's the cliche, but if you had MS, you wouldn't go, "Oh, look at you wasting your life with your MS." Yeah, absolutely. But I think the the kindness aspect, I think what I struggle with most of all when I'm depressed and anxious is making sensible decisions without the cloud of shit around. You know, and everything becomes out of perspective and everything becomes slightly out of control. And especially when you're someone like the Fringe, where perspective is difficult anyway, it can be a very difficult place. Mm. But what you have now, looking forward to the Fringe this year, A, you're in a better place. B, I think we're all I think we're all a lot more honest with each other. Comedians. Yeah. yeah. You know, a few years ago I, who would I have spoken to? I don't know. Yeah. Now I could go almost anywhere in Edinburgh and find someone who I know is a little bit wrong in the head and we could probably sit down and have a cup of tea. Yeah. Cuz there's more of us now I think who are happy to share our anxieties with yeah. each other. And I think I know when the warning signs are there as well. Yeah. And to do something about it even if it's not successful. I know when I'm, you know when you're teetering right on the edge yeah, of that cuckoo. <laughs> yeah. This is about to go horribly wrong. My my concern is that how quickly I can still go to insane. Uh-huh. Like that I can, so something happened a couple of weeks ago and I just went into something that had nothing to do with me, but I still went into deep shame, deep insecurity, I'm not good enough, I'm never going to get what I want. I'm never going to be the person that I want to be. And it was, it really took me by surprise. It was just like, there was, I was doing great. How quickly it could potentially. Like in a matter of minutes. And then it stayed with me for days, just these echoes. It's just like being in a mm-hmm. nightmare mm-hmm. chamber where you're operating in the world, but your thoughts are somewhere else. Yes. And that's what, you know, that's where mindfulness and meditation helps as well. But Do you do that? I do. I never managed it. Can I t- look? I absolutely get it. Meditation is very, very hard. Mm-hmm. Um, the The thing that I've spoken to people about the, the the thing that people have spoken to me about the most is one: they're not good at it. That mm-hmm. seems to be a frustration, and two: that they get angry that they're not good at it while they're doing it, and it's another reason for them to hate themselves. That's what I've also heard, mm-hmm. and three: that they can't sit still. That's yeah. That's a problem for me. So, would you like any? Would you like my suggestions or ideas about this? Always open to suggestions and ideas. None. None of this is saying you need to do this, but this is what I found helpful: that meditation is not about immediately. It's not about having a peaceful mind because mm-hmm. you're not going to get a peaceful mind straight away because you haven't been meditating and you're mentally ill. 
that so. What it became about I for me. I love my conversations with you. <laughs> <laughs> You've never meditated, meditated and you're mentally ill, Susan. Carry on, Felicity. <laughs> That's actually all I had to say about it. <laughs> no, but when I, when I first started, it wasn't about, I had to say, right, I'm sitting down mind and I'm sitting down for 10 minutes. You think about whatever you want. If you want to think about the past, if you want to like stew on the past, fantasize about the future, do it. But I'm sitting here for 10 minutes. So if you go calm, great. That's what I'm here for. But if you don't, I'm sitting here anyway. You're basically telling your brain, whatever you want to do, that's fine, but I'm sitting here for 10 minutes. And it's 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 like it, it's um it's basically CBT but for meditation. Right. Where the behavior is I'm sitting here for 10 minutes or five minutes or two minutes. But it's about setting that time for yourself that says, this is for me. Because I remember uh, this happened years ago. I had a panic attack just before I went on stage and I was emceeing the Hi-Fi Club, which is the festival bar, first Friday night in Melbourne Comedy Festival, sold out room. There's, I don't know, 400 people there. And I have full panic attack. I get tears in my eyes, get a lump in my throat. I get this, my chest tightens. And I don't know what I'm going to do. And then this thought came to me that said, I am not my body. And I was like, okay. And then I said to my anxiety, I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to go and do 10 minutes of stand-up comedy. You can come with me if you like. That's okay. But regardless of whether you come with me, I'm going on there. And it went away. And so the idea with meditation is depression, anxiety, you can sit with me here for the next five minutes um, or you can go away, whatever you're going to do, but I'm going to sit here and do this for myself. And that alone helped me to settle a little bit. I also have an app that I listen to. I can't just listen to nothing. That's impossible. Nothing's terrifying. So there's an app that I use that has different soundscapes and they have guided meditations. So they have two-minute guided meditations. So for two minutes, the lady tells you what you're doing. And then they have ones that are like they have different programs and in the program Mm -hmm. they'll say things like you might be getting angry at yourself because your mind's wandering. There's no reason to show yourself some compassion. So they that it, it's based on how we think. Mm-hmm. So that was very helpful for me too. So I have one that I do, I would like to say every day, but yes. I don't. I do it maybe uh, on a good week, I'll do it five times a week. On a bad week, I'll do it twice. Listening to this podcast, Felicity Ward, we don't know who's listening to this. It could be anyone. It could be people with depression. It could be people who don't have depression. Um, that's the joy of podcasts. I love podcasts. I'm obsessed with podcasts. I listen to hundreds of them. Before we finish up, is there anything that you want to see? I mean, what I want to see is that depression can be, you don't, depression doesn't need to be negative. There is a way out of it. There is a way to deal with it. There is, I'm the person I am because I'm depressed and I don't think that's a bad thing. What, What would you say to people listening? Let's go for the depressed people. For the depressed people. Um, Sitting in their pants. I feel like the most real thought to me um, and I, is that when I'm sick, I feel like I'll never be well again. And when I'm well, it was like I was never sick. That's how I, that is how I genuinely feel. And I say it repeatedly to remind myself that neither of those things are true. That every time I've been sick, I've come out of it. And that every time I've been well, I've got sick again. And that's not, it's not a curse, 
but what that tells me that's a that's a mathematical equation and what that tells me is um that if i i need to work on acceptance more than anything else yes. and I, that when i'm sick you know i've had depression for i don't know how many years diagnosed but i still get angry when it comes mm-hmm. and that if people are angry at themselves because they're sick i completely understand and other people understand that um because i think it's i you know I can tell all of these people a happy message, but the reality is when you feel depressed, you feel like someone has stolen something from you, like yourself, and I feel like when I am depressed that I'm watching someone else do a terrible impression of me in the world, being an asshole to people that I love, um, not being able to perform work or friendships in the way that I can and know that I can, and it's like I'm trapped in you know when um in those police movies when they're behind the double-sided glass yes. it's like i'm on the other side of the double-sided glass going don't say that that's that's not what you say to people that you love that's not how you behave that's not how you dress hmm. and i think i i don't know i hope that that's helpful that if people are not doing well that you are not the only person that have has thought that and that I have thought that and that it does pass and there's nothing I hate more than when I'm sick that people when people say it'll pass I'm like yeah I know it'll pass <laughs> it's not helping me right when? now yeah when give me a date acceptance is a huge thing it's a huge thing uh, self-acceptance self-acceptance it's a huge thing and you know Felicity and I are two of I mean the coolest comedians the coolest I mean people envy us all the time I have my shoes off uh, <laughs> so if we're all right yeah and we are all right and that exercise is an absolute non-negotiable exercise, ab- completely I hate it I hate exercising yep I hate it yep but it's it uh, to me I, I'm managing three times a week at the gym so good and I need to do four or five yep I need to be doing four or five, but three is okay. It's keeping me going, but exercise is important. But but generally, trying is sounds easy. But don't hate yourself because you're depressed, and don't hate yourself if you're if you've tried to do something and you couldn't do it. Yeah, like it's meditation. Your, yeah, you're doing the best you can with the tools you have, but the key is to keep trying. That's still my favourite part of this entire conversation. You're not good at meditating, Susan, because you've never done it before and you're mentally ill. I mean, well, thanks, I mean, Felicity, for constantly being positive, <laughs> being a delight. Do you know what I mean? Though? I do know what you mean. I, I do love know what you, you mean. so much. I love, I love you love too, you. Felicity. That's not what I meant. I meant when I first started, of course I wasn't going to be good at it because <laughs> I was mentally ill. I'm going to come and see oh, your show so at the Fringe sorry. and I really want you to just point at me and go... You're mentally you're ill. Mentally of course, Ill. you're not good at meditation. <laughs> Everyone, if we can just stop the show, Susan Kalman's in. Um, <laughs> she's mentally ill. She's, uh, she can't meditate. Stand up and I'll just go. Of course, she can't meditate. She's <laughs> mentally ill. That's the name of my next show. Of course, you can't meditate. Mentate. Jesus. Of course, you can't meditate. You're mentally ill. Cool on. You're mentally ill. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually not bad. Yeah, your PR would love that. Thanks, Felicity. Thanks, Susan. I'm mentally ill. <laughs> of course you can't meditate. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you download your podcast from, and then you'll automatically get next week's episode. Next week, I'll be talking to Al Murray. If you come on going, oh, look at you, 
wankers why are you laughing at this shit and uh, have you took me six hours to get here and uh, mm-hmm. have you any idea how tired i am and and all that and then if you add into that and my wife's left me <laughs> and then i then i suppose you can end up in sad clown territory if you like the show do leave us a review as that will help other people find it too and if you want to get in touch then you can email mrs brightside at bbc.co.uk and finally we know this podcast talks about things that might have affected you or someone you know personally If that's the case and you'd like some further info, head to the Mrs Brightside page on the BBC website and we'll put up some links to places you might find useful. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, Calman out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.